Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, and is titled Lyme Disease, Challenges and Innovations. Here's Dr. Thomas Frieden, Director of the CDC. Welcome to Public Health Grand Rounds, and thanks to all the presenters. Lyme disease is the most commonly reported vector-borne disease in the United States, and it occurs worldwide. Lyme disease is a growing public health problem in the U.S., with reported cases on the rise. There are controversies surrounding Lyme disease, including serological diagnosis. Wherever there is controversy, we rely on our bedrock principle of basing all decisions on the highest quality scientific data openly and objectively derived. CDC is working to address these issues and to disseminate accurate information. Today's session of Public Health Grand Rounds will explore the ecology, epidemiology, and prevention of Lyme disease in the U.S., clinical and treatment challenges, and diagnostic testing for the disease. The session will also provide a state perspective on Lyme disease from the Minnesota Department of Health. Successful prevention and treatment of Lyme disease requires a multi-target approach, including better ways to prevent and test, more effective community-level interventions, and clearer health communication messages for patients and professionals. An integrated approach will help reduce ticks and reduce the risk of Lyme disease and allow us to prevent, manage, and control the disease. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Paul Mead. Lyme disease is a multi-system vector-borne zoonosis caused by the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi. Small mammals and birds are natural reservoirs for the pathogen, which is transmitted in the United States by two species of black-legged ticks, Ixodes scapularis in the northeast and north-central U.S. and Ixodes pacificus along the west coast. The eggs of Ixodes ticks hatch in the spring, and the larvae feed on the small animals that are the reservoirs for Borrelia burgdorferi. The following spring, they take a second blood meal as nymphs, transmitting the infection to a new host. Nymphs are small, active in the late spring and early summer, and play a major role in transmitting infection to humans. After molting into adults, ticks congregate on deer, which are immune to infection by B. burgdorferi, but play an important role in this cycle by supporting tick populations. Lyme disease was first designated a nationally notifiable condition in 1991. For surveillance purposes, a confirmed case is defined as erythema migrans with exposure in an endemic area, erythema migrans with laboratory evidence but no history of exposure, or select non-cutaneous manifestations combined with appropriate laboratory evidence of infection. A probable category, added in 2008, allows capture of cases with a broader array of clinical features when combined with laboratory evidence. As you will hear repeatedly today, case confirmation can be time-consuming for health departments in highly endemic areas. The current magnitude of underreporting is unknown. However, due to changes in surveillance, estimates of tenfold underreporting developed in the 1990s 
are excessive when applied to current surveillance data. Importantly, cases are reported based on the county of patients' residence rather than county of exposure. Within the United States, the distribution of Lyme disease is highly regional. The majority of cases occur in the Northeast and Upper Midwest, reflecting the known distribution of infected ticks. There are also areas of endemic transmission along the West Coast, especially in Northern California. Cases are occasionally reported from non-endemic areas as a result of infection acquired during travel to an endemic area. Areas of high transmission, emphasized by the orange lines, are steadily spreading outward as seen by comparing the distribution in 1998 with the distribution 10 years later in 2008. Since 1991, the number of Lyme cases has nearly tripled. This increase is both an artifact of better reporting in some highly endemic states, such as Connecticut, but also a reflection of a true increase in incidence and geographic distribution of disease, as will be described for Minnesota. With the recent addition of probable cases, over 38,000 cases were reported to CDC in 2009. To put these numbers in perspective, in 2009, Lyme disease was the sixth most commonly reported notifiable disease in the U.S. and the second most commonly reported notifiable disease in New England states. The ongoing emergence of Lyme disease has highlighted a number of challenges. The speakers following me will discuss those related to clinical diagnosis and treatment, laboratory diagnostics, and the practice of public health. Before that, however, I would like to discuss some of the current options and challenges as they relate to primary prevention of Lyme disease, which is generally considered in three categories, personal protective measures, environmental tick control, interventions requiring community-based efforts. One of the best modalities for personal protection is vaccination. However, the only FDA-approved Lyme vaccine in the United States was removed from the market in 2002, reportedly due to poor sales. As a result, we are left with the daily practices shown here, including avoiding tick habitat when possible, wearing protective clothing, using insect repellents routinely, checking for ticks daily, and bathing after exposure. The efficacy of personal protective measures has been studied extensively, with somewhat varying results as shown for tick checks and repellent use. Methodological differences hamper comparisons across studies. Instead, I'll briefly describe the results of this most recent study by Connolly and colleagues. This prospective case control study involving 364 patients found a protective effect for wearing repellent, performing tick checks, and bathing within two hours of exposure. Bathing appears to be particularly effective, perhaps because it involves removing clothing that may contain ticks, it provides an opportunity to detect attached ticks, and if done promptly, may wash off unattached ticks that are crawling on the skin or in the hair. There are several environmental interventions that can reduce tick abundance and potentially Lyme disease risk. For example, 
Landscaping can help create tick-safe zones within the backyard through practices such as clearing brush and leaf litter and constructing gravel and wood chip borders adjacent to forested areas. Efforts to discourage or exclude deer can also reduce tick abundance. Another form of environmental management is a single appropriately timed application of pesticide which can dramatically reduce tick populations for months at a time. Moving on to interventions at the community level, the United States Department of Agriculture has developed a four-poster bait device that treats deer with a topical pesticide and reduces their carriage of adult ticks on the ears. These devices may reduce tick abundance over a wide area, but there are obstacles to their use, including concerns about the risk posed to hunters by pesticide residue and prohibitions against feeding deer. Studies such as this one done on a reserve near Bridgeport, Connecticut, suggest that reducing deer populations can also affect tick abundance, at least on islands and in peninsular settings. It remains to be seen whether deer populations can be reduced sufficiently in mainland areas where immigration of new deer is more difficult to prevent. In summary, Lyme disease is an important public health problem, and the number of cases and the size of highly endemic areas continues to grow. Although an array of prevention methods are available, there is currently no single, highly effective, widely accepted method for preventing infection. There are four things CDC is doing to address this situation. The first three are education, focusing on programs designed to assure that current prevention methods are as widely known and utilized as possible. This includes using fewer messages that are better targeted to those at risk, such as pamphlets for golfers and trail signs for hikers. We no longer tell people to tuck their pants into their socks. It seems that only epidemiologists and entomologists are willing to look like this. <laughs> CDC is also working to improve current and to develop and validate new prevention methods. With three state partners, we are conducting a placebo-controlled trial involving 1,600 households to validate the ability of a single pesticide application to prevent human Lyme disease as opposed to simply kill ticks. We are evaluating natural plant extracts, such as oils of yellow cedar, as an alternative to synthetic chemical pesticides for tick control. Finally, we are working on rodent-targeted vaccines to interrupt local transmission cycles and evaluating the effectiveness of deer-targeted interventions. Thank you, and it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Alan Steer. Thanks, Paul. I'm Alan Steer from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. It's good to be back at CDC. I was around when Lyme disease was recognized as a separate entity, and I've been asked to recall some of the early events about the discovery of the disease. I will also cover the clinical manifestations of active infection and new information about post-infectious syndromes, as well as current recommendations for treatment. I will end with some thoughts about what's ahead for us. 
1973 and 74, David Snydman and I were EIS officers at CDC in Atlanta, Building One. In July 1975, he became acting director of epidemiology for the Connecticut State Health Department, and I started a rheumatology fellowship at Yale. Four months later, David heard from two mothers from Lyme, Connecticut, regarding arthritis cases in their small communities, including many cases in children. David called me, and we began to investigate this cluster of arthritis cases. Most of the children had been diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Rather than JRA, epidemiologic analysis suggested that this was an arthropod-transmitted illness. On some roads, as many as one in 10 children had arthritis. Most patients had disease onset in the summer or early fall. And families with multiple affected members had the onset in different years. We decided that this epidemic of oligoarticular arthritis represented a distinct new clinical entity, which we called Lyme arthritis. Moreover, consistent with the idea of arthropod transmission, one quarter of the children or their parents recalled an expanding skin lesion before the onset of arthritis that they thought was an insect bite. The following year, the Yale investigators looked for patients with this unusual expanding skin lesion and followed them prospectively. This is the clinical picture that emerged. Lyme disease usually begins with a slowly expanding skin lesion called erythema migrans. In the United States, this phase of the illness is often accompanied by flu-like symptoms of headache, stiff neck, myalgias, arthralgias, or fever, without GI or respiratory symptoms. However, about one in five patients lack this initial skin lesion, and the illness in these patients begins with flu-like symptoms or a later disease manifestation. In the U.S., the spirochete often disseminates during the first days and weeks of illness. Within several more weeks, about 15% of untreated patients develop objective neurologic abnormalities. The most common abnormalities are meningitis, cranial neuropathy, and or motor or sensory radiculoneuropathy. During the same period, about 5% of patients develop cardiac involvement, most commonly AV nodal block or myopericarditis. Months later, about 60% of untreated patients develop arthritis. The most frequent pattern is intermittent attacks of arthritis in one or a few joints over a period of several years. However, some patients have a more persistent course, especially affecting knees. Rarely, patients may have late neurologic manifestations, most commonly a subtle encephalopathy affecting memory accompanied by CSF abnormalities, or a subtle axonal polyneuropathy with abnormal EMG findings. Late in the illness, the infection is usually quite localized, and systemic symptoms are minimal, if present at all. In addition, even without antibiotics, 
the immune system seems to win out eventually, usually within several years, and symptoms resolve. The Infectious Diseases Society of America has published guidelines for the treatment of this infection. For early infection, when most patients have erythema migrans, either oral doxycycline or amoxicillin given for 14 to 21 days works well. In patients who are allergic to these antibiotics, cefuroxime axotil, a third-generation cephalosporin, may be used. Macrolide antibiotics, including erythromycin, are a fourth-choice alternative. They are not as effective as the other three antibiotics for the treatment of the infection. Organ system involvement of Lyme disease may require more intensive treatment, but most patients respond well to appropriate therapy. Objective neurologic abnormalities, with the possible exception of facial palsy alone, are usually treated with IV ceftriaxin for two to four weeks. For patients with high-grade A heart block, treatment is usually started with IV therapy, but a four-week course is completed with oral therapy when the clinical picture improves. Lyme arthritis can usually be treated successfully with oral antibiotics for four to eight weeks. However, some patients require a four-week course of IV therapy for successful treatment of the infection. What are the key challenges today? Understanding how to diagnose and treat syndromes that may follow recommended courses of antibiotics, and distinguishing these syndromes from other illnesses. Most researchers think that these syndromes result from other factors than active infection. There are strong feelings on the part of advocacy groups that these persistent symptoms result from persistent infection and require months or years of antibiotics. What are these persistent syndromes? First, most patients have complete recovery from Lyme neuroborreliosis, but mild residual neurologic deficits may persist in some patients. For example, Facial palsy may not resolve completely. Of great interest to me as a rheumatologist, proliferative synovitis in the joint may persist after a parent's spirochetal killing with two to three months of antibiotics. Autoimmunity may play a role in this disease course. But this has been the big problem. In a small percentage of cases, pain, neurocognitive, or fatigue symptoms may begin with, or often a few months after, apparent successful treatment of Lyme disease. In contrast with late neuroborreliosis, symptoms in these patients are usually more generalized and disabling, but CSF and EMG tests are normal. These pain and fatigue syndromes are not specific for Lyme disease. They may follow certain other infections or stressful events, including physical or emotional trauma. In several reports listed here, the majority of patients with presumed Lyme disease who were referred to university medical centers had pain or fatigue syndromes, but no evidence of past or present Borrelia burgdorferi infection.
Current research suggests that amplification of sensory signals in the brain may be an important mechanism. In patients with post-Lyme disease pain and fatigue symptoms, four double-blind placebo-controlled trials failed to show a sustained benefit from additional oral or IV antibiotic therapy. However, severe adverse effects were reported, particularly with IV antibiotics, including IV line infections and antibiotic-associated colitis. In conclusion, Lyme disease is a multisystem infection that typically occurs in stages with different clinical manifestations at each stage. Effective treatment is tailored to the clinical manifestation of the disease. Early disease can usually be treated effectively with oral antibiotics, whereas organ system involvement may require IV therapy. The current problems in diagnosis and treatment stem primarily from post-infectious syndromes, which include incomplete recovery of nerve function, persistent synovitis after a parent's spirochetal killing, and pain, neurocognitive, and fatigue symptoms. There is currently no evidence for sustained benefit from further courses of antibiotic therapy, but there is the potential for harm. What's ahead? I think that we will see further studies searching for evidence of active B. burgdorferi after recommended courses of antibiotics. The flip side of the coin will be further studies to understand whether autoimmunity plays a role in this disease. Finally, research is certainly underway to understand and treat more effectively centralized pain syndromes, not just in Lyme disease, but in the many conditions in which this may occur. Thank you very much. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 